Well, good morning once again. Uh, it's great to be worshiping with you. Uh, my name is Levi Pancake. For those of you that don't know me, I serve as one of the uh, elders here, and uh, we're going to continue our series through the gospel according to Mark, and this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 14, verse 12 and following. That's Mark 14, 12 and following. If you're using the Pew Bible, um, that would be page 850, page 850. While you're turning there, um, we want to welcome fourth and fifth graders into the room for July and August. Uh, fourth and fifth graders will be um, in the sanctuary with us. And so, uh, if you're a fourth and fifth grader, you should have received one of these yellow pieces of paper. And um, it, it outlines some of the things going on in the service as well as the sermon. And uh, when we're going through the passage and, and making some points, uh, you'll notice the fill in the blanks um, are going to be underlined on the screen as well. And then glad that uh, you all are worshiping with us this morning as well. And um, yeah, welcome. Mark 14, verse 12 and following. This is the word of the Lord. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, He took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many." Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can uh, praise you, worship you, and have fellowship with one another this morning. We pray now that you would Incline our hearts, open our eyes, give us understanding, and please satisfy us with your word and with your promises. We love you, Lord, and it's in Christ's name we pray together, amen. Well, uh, a few weeks ago, my wife and I went to 
uh, 50th wedding anniversary party. It was a great celebration, and it was great to see uh, this, this couple with uh, all of their kids, their grandkids, um, other family members, friends, people from church, uh, work colleagues, all there celebrating with this, this couple. And it was a reason to celebrate. It was a great encouragement to see uh, those two who had been uh, committed to one another for decades and have been following the Lord for decades. And it was a, a source of strengthening and encouragement to all of us who were there uh, for that, that celebration. It was a reason to celebrate. And, and this celebration was marked by uh, a meal. Now, the, the kids who, who put on uh, the party for everyone, um, what they did is they actually um, brought in food from some of this couple's favorite restaurants in Syracuse. I mean, there was barbecue, there was Italian food, there was Mexican, there were uh, just incredible desserts, there was a coffee bar. I mean, it was fantastic to just eat all of that food and enjoy that time together. And, and that's typically what we do when there's a, a celebration or a festivity. We uh, share a meal together. Sharing a meal, especially during a, a festive occasion, um, brings together family, friends, colleagues, people that we love and, and care about. Think Thanksgiving, Christmas, birthdays, or recently, the 4th of July, we all come together, we mark an occasion, and typically there's some type of, of food or a meal. Now, the great Jewish festivals did the same thing. They did this with their festivals. They, um, they had meals, they had festivals, and most of those festivals in Judaism uh, began to, to celebrate what God had done in redeeming or saving His people out of slavery from Egypt. And highest among those festivals, supreme among them, was the Passover. And Jesus, in our passage, is going to use the occasion, the celebration of the Passover to celebrate a new covenant meal. Jesus celebrates the new covenant meal that looked back to God's deliverance of His people and looked forward to the messianic banquet that He would share with them in the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. Jesus celebrates the new covenant meal that looked back to God's deliverance of His people and looked forward to the messianic banquet that He would share with them in the kingdom of God. Pretty straightforward outline. First, we're going to see the preparation, Jesus' control over the Passover arrangements. Secondly, we're going to see the pronouncement. Jesus announces His betrayal. Third, the Lord's Supper, Jesus' institution of the new covenant meal. The preparation, the pronouncement, and the Lord's Supper. First of all, the preparation, Jesus' control over the arrangements, the Passover arrangements. Verse 12 of Mark chapter 14, and on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So, we read that verse and we need to reorient or orient ourselves 
um, around what the Passover is. You know, what's the Passover? What's unleavened bread? Why are they sacrificing lambs on that day? Well, the Passover and unleavened bread, um, that festival, uh, they usually just blended them together and just called it Passover. Now, if you recall the Passover story from Exodus chapter 12, uh, it's one of the, if not the, most significant moment in Israelite or Jewish history. Now, background, there's this threat of the tenth and final plague and God's judgment on Egypt. Moses was told to warn Pharaoh that Yahweh Himself, the Lord, was going to pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn male. And there would be no distinction between human or animal or social class. And the only way of escape from God's wrath would be by God's own devising and God's own provision. So each Israelite household, they were told to choose a lamb that was a year old without defect and to kill it. Then they would take some of the lamb's blood, they'd take a hyssop branch, they'd dip it into the blood, and then they'd sprinkle it on the front doorposts. And they were not to go out of their house all night. Having shed and sprinkled the blood, now they were called to shelter under it. For God, who had already announced His intention to pass through Egypt in judgment, He now added this promise to pass over every blood-marked house in order to shield the household from His wrath. So each Israelite home, they would take the lamb that was slaughtered, they'd roast the lamb, and they would eat with their belts fastened and sandals on their feet and staff ready in hand. Uh, They were ready at any moment for God to rescue them. For they had received their salvation by substitution. The lamb was killed in their place, and only, only those who were covered by the blood of the lamb would be saved. So, the Jewish people celebrated this. In fact, they were commanded by God to celebrate this every year. And the festival of unleavened bread uh, began with Passover and then continued on for seven days. Now, its name came from uh, also Exodus 12, where the Israelites were commanded to uh, remove all the leaven from their homes in order uh, to, to communicate the urgency that they needed to be ready for God to save them at any moment. Now, later on, uh, when they would celebrate this festival, the festival they would uh, remove all the leaven from their home, and the leaven began to signify the permeating power of sin. So, so thus, the removal of the leaven for the Israelites became an act of purification as well, reminder of sin, reminder of God's provision. So, every year, this festival would celebrate how God delivered His people from Egypt. The meal, the Passover meal, marked them as His own. It marked the birth of a nation. Who is Israel? The people 
rescued by God from Egypt. And the Passover reminded them year after year after year that they were a people, the only people whom God freed from slavery and made His own, the only people that God redeemed for worship. And God saved the people through the blood of a sacrifice. He freed them from slavery and made them His own. That's why we called, when we, uh, two years ago, we walked through the book of Exodus and we titled that series, Redeemed for Worship. That's the picture there. God redeems a people. He frees them from slavery, makes them His own, that they may worship Him. And the meal, the Passover meal, the context of Mark 14, I mean, this defined the people. They all celebrated it. No one else could. And by retelling the story year after year, um, the meal brought the past act of deliverance to the present, and it told every Israelite, every generation, they had once been a slave, but they have a God who loves them and would and did rescue them. And then Deuteronomy 16 said that that festival, that the Passover meal, needed to be observed within the walls of Jerusalem. So at this time, uh, every year, Jerusalem, the population would swell beyond its, its everyday form. It was quite populated, and it was kind of busting at the seams. Okay, that's the context of Passover unleavened bread. Then we go to verse 13, because the, the disciples asked Jesus, well, what, what will you have us do to prepare the Passover meal. How are we going to celebrate this? Verse 13, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. So Jesus had previously made some arrangements. He sends two of the disciples into the city. Uh, the other gospels identify them as Peter and John. And when they were going to the city, they were to identify a man carrying a jar of water. Now he would stand out. That was typically a task that women performed. So to see a man doing it, he would stand out in the crowd. They were then to follow this jar-carrying man to a house. They were to enter the house, find the master, and then invoke the teacher's name. The teacher says, where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And then the master of the house will show him this large upper room. Not only is it larged, it's furnished, and it is ready. And then the disciples would go, and they were to prepare the Passover meal there. So those two disciples, uh, verse 16 tells us, they went out, they go to the city, and they found it just as He had told them, and they end up preparing the Passover meal. This is a pretty significant moment. And Jesus is making some significant preparations. He's announcing those preordained, prearranged 
preparations as well. I mean, we do this for little things all the time. You have some people coming over to your house for a visit. You're going to vacuum. You might clean the toilets if they're going to spend the night. Um, maybe you'll, you should wash the sheets, uh, set up some towels for them, some washcloths, all that kind of stuff. I mean, we do it all the time. We make preparations when people are coming to visit. We make preparations for uh, big events. Some of you probably bought a lot of fireworks this past week. Some of you bought a lot of hamburger meat and hot dogs. Maybe some of you even bought those hot dogs that, um, that have the, the skin around them, the, the Hoffman dogs or something like that, that, that pop in your mouth. It, I'm not from here, so that always grossed me out, but you all love that. And I get judged when I make the face when I eat it. We make preparations for that. It takes Sunday morning. I mean, each week between downtown and our Casanova congregation, we've got 60 volunteers that serve each week, 240 in a month from uh, connections, security, parking lots. We've got uh, well over a dozen in Missio Kids right now. You've got the band rehearsing this morning. You've got uh, pro presenter and sound. You've got the service planning team that meets monthly to plan out all the services for the upcoming month. You've got the sermon prep. I mean, that's just for an hour and 20 minutes. We prepare for things. Jesus was preparing for one, if not the, the most important meal human history. And Jesus' preparations were flawless. They went to the city and found it just as He had told them. You and I know, we live in this fallen world, we make preparations all the time, and rarely do they go according to plan. Uh, Just two weeks ago, I had my driveway paved and sealed. And so, um, the crew did it, and uh, when they're done with it, I mean, you just marvel at the nice, fresh coat of blacktop on that driveway. It's just a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's shiny. It's pretty to look at. You just kind of beam with pride for a moment. And so, they leave. Um, I walk away. I come back 10 minutes later to marvel at the freshly paved and sealed driveway, and I notice a bike tire track right across the middle of it. I mean, not 10 minutes after they rolled away, some punk rode their bike over my driveway. It's all sealed off. You've got the orange tape, like you shouldn't walk on the driveway, you shouldn't drive on the driveway, you, sure, you, you should not ride a bike on the driveway. And, and I think, I mean, there's like squiggly lines, and they just did it right at the perfect time where that tire track is never going to leave until it's paved and sealed in two to three years. And it's the only thing that I notice. I cannot enjoy the driveway anymore. My eyes just fixate on that to the point where I was kind of obsessing over it. So I instructed my seven-year-old daughter, hey, Sophia, if I mention that, just tell me it's not a big deal and this will all fade away in eternity. And she said it about 20 times that day. Daddy, it's not a big deal. This will all fade away in eternity. You're right, daughter. You're right, Sophia. Absolutely. I need to hear this truth. Absolutely. Not to mention the fact that then two days later, I mow the lawn. You got grass all over the driveway. So I get the leaf blower out to try to blow the grass off. The leaf blower was out of gas, so I pour gas in. I even wipe the leaf blower off. And so I'm, I'm blowing the driveway, and little did I know that there's like little plops of gas that's coming behind me. So I marvel at it again. I look behind me. There's just a trail of gas. So then I get the hose out. I put the hose all over it, and the, the water just like spreads around the gas stop. And it's just like, that's it. Like, do not store up for yourselves. Treasure on earth where moth and rust 
rust to steal, uh, destro- moth and rust destroys, thieves break in and steal. Like, do not store up for yourself paved driveways on earth where tire tracks and gasoline spots will ruin the driveway. Thank you, Lord, for that reminder. Our preparations do not typically work the way that we plan them. Jesus's did. And this was the most, as I mentioned, important meal in the history of the world. Why? Because this meal identified Christ as the Passover lamb. This meal identified Christ as the Passover lamb who would deliver God's people. It would be the final meal that Christ would eat before His crucifixion, and this meal would graphically explain the central role of Christ to salvation. You have the preparation, then you have the pronouncement. Jesus announces His betrayal. Verse 17 and 18, and when it was evening, He came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. So here they are, enjoying this nice meal, when all of a sudden Jesus goes Debbie Downer on them. He says, one of them is going to betray him. You know, if you've had a meal, imagine having a meal with you know, some dear friends of yours, and you think you're just going to enjoy your evening, and they announce that they're moving next week all of a sudden. Or, you know, you sit down to have the meal, and it's Thanksgiving, and the dog just comes and, like, eats the turkey right before you eat it. Like, it's one of those things, only a billion times more significant. He announces his betrayal. It's that type of bomb. It's a horrifying announcement. And it's illusion. Psalm 41, verse 9, which says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And verse 19 says, They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, One after another, Is it I? I mean, the the announcement's obviously distressing. The disciples are shocked. And they suspected no one. And the reader knows we just saw this last week, but, but they don't know. They're not suspecting Judas either. So they're asking him, am I the one? Is it I? Could it be me? So Jesus expounds a bit in verse 20. He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Now, some commentators would say because Jesus had to actually clarify that it's one of the twelve here, um, that that most likely means that there were more at this Last Supper than just the twelve disciples, despite uh, popular paintings and tellings of the story. Regardless, He said it's one of the twelve. And then lest we think it's some, you know, like slow motion moment where uh, Judas is dipping the bread into the dish, and right when Jesus says that, and then everyone like looks at him and yells, gotcha, it wasn't that at all. It was just another way of stating what he had said earlier. It's someone who's sharing this meal. It's someone who's here right now. And Mark doesn't mention that, like, like Matthew, John, they, they, they don't mention Judas's presence at the meal. They don't mention his departure. But it's clear, the betrayer is someone who shares the closest fellowship with Jesus. Then Jesus continues in verse 21, for the Son of Man goes 
as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. Now, Jesus has repeatedly throughout Mark talked about the necessity of the Son of Man's suffering. That phrase used twice in verse 21, Son of Man, should be very familiar to us if you've been with us through the gospel according to Mark. It's Jesus' favorite self-identifying title. It's used some 14 times in the, the book of Mark. It comes from Daniel 7, Son of Man, riding on a clouds and approaches the Ancient of Days, God Himself. God Himself gives Him honor and glory and power. Well, throughout Mark, that Son of Man who comes in glory has also been identified with suffering. And here we're reminded also that that suffering comes with it, an act of betrayal. But all of it is a part of God's purposes and plans. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. The general point being that what's happening to Jesus is not a tragedy, but is part of God's purpose and plan. And while at the same time, in that verse, he's upholding God's sovereignty, God's unfailing purposes and plans, Jesus then contrasts that with a, with a but, a woe formula, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So, although the death of the Messiah is part of the fulfillment of Scripture and part of God's plan, this does not remove the human responsibility from the betrayal. Now, this is an important reminder, I think, for all of us um, to remember that God is sovereignly at work, even through those who oppose Him or fail Him. God is sovereignly at work accomplishing His purposes and His plans, while at the same time, we are still held accountable for our decisions, our actions, our attitudes, our behavior. We're still held accountable to our Creator. So we can rest in the fact that God's purposes will be accomplished, that He's sovereign, that He's good, that He's got the whole world in His hands, that He's got the planets in His hands and the stars in, our hands, in His hands, and, and every aspect and nuance of our lives. He's trustworthy and good while still acknowledging and recognizing that we are called to account to our Creator, and that that does not absolve us. God's sovereignty does not absolve us from our responsibility. And in an age where, where you could classify it, generally speaking, as in an age and culture where there's a crisis of responsibility, massive blame shifting and pointing the finger, and it's always someone else's fault, this is a reminder to us. What Jesus says, Sermon on the Mount, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who recognize their own spiritual bankruptcy, their own spiritual depravity, their own spiritual need, humble themselves, turn to their Creator and the provision that He has given, the shed blood of Christ. No matter what you're going through this morning, from pronouncements of sickness in your family to recent deaths to um, maybe a betrayal of a close friend or loved one, whatever you're going through, rest that God works for the good of those who love Him. And for those of us who are playing this dangerous game of living in unconfessed, unrepentant, ongoing sin, May we turn to God through the provision that He's given us in Christ Jesus, the forgiveness of our sins. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The preparation, the pronouncement, and now we have the Lord's Supper. Verse 22, and as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So, into the context of betrayal… And and later on, we'll see even defection from the disciples. Mark places the Last Supper as the central piece. Jesus is here remaking the Passover in order to tell His disciples how they are to understand His upcoming death. It is no accident. It's no mistake. It's not taking Jesus by surprise. It's not happening against His will. Instead, Jesus is giving His body for His disciples, for His followers. He is going to shed His blood for many. So, Jesus now radically reinterprets the unleavened bread, and He says, take this is my body. And as he identified the bread as the body, so he identifies the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many with the cup. Now, this is my blood of the covenant. What is the covenant? What covenant? This is the covenant that was promised centuries before clearly articulated in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 31 and following. You'll see it on the screens, or you can turn there on page 660. Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 31 and following, says this, "'Behold, the days are coming,' declares the Lord, "'when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers,' On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, 
though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. In this new covenant, Jesus is talking about, this is my blood of the covenant. In this new covenant, God would write His law on people's hearts. He would transform them from the inside out so that they love what He loves, so that they have the ability to do what He commands. They would all know Him from the least to the greatest. He would forgive their sins fully and finally, remembering them no more. And all of this, Jesus was saying, is now going to happen through His death. God was going to seal His new covenant in Jesus' blood. How can Jesus say, you know, this is my body and this is my blood? How, how can He identify the, the elements right here like that? Well, He's making the bread and the cup a, a sign of the new covenant. He's tying these elements to the new covenant promise, kind of like to make an analogy like we would tie um, a a ring to a wedding vow. I could say to my wife, I could point to her and the ring on her finger, and I could say, this ring is my promise to love you and to cherish you, to care for you, to provide for you. And when you see it on your finger, remember my commitment to you. Now, the ring itself, if you just put on a ring, that doesn't make you married all of a sudden. But the ring is a sign. It points to something. In this case, if I'm using this analogy, the covenant I've made with my wife as a reminder of my commitment to her. Just like this ring reminds me of her commitment to me, the type of covenant we've made before the Lord. Bobby Jameson is a pastor and author. He helpfully explains it this way. He says, Jesus isn't saying that the bread and wine transform into something they're not. Instead, He is naming the sign by what it points to. And because Jesus makes the bread and wine a sign of God's new covenant promise, He commands, though we don't see this command in Mark, we see it in other passages, his disciples, to repeat this meal in remembrance of Him. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's Luke 22, 19. And just as the Passover was a memorial to be regularly repeated, Exodus 12, 14, Jesus turned the Last Supper with His disciples into a new memorial, a new meal that defines the identity and community of those saved by Jesus' death. So this meal, when we participate in it, 
The meal in and of itself doesn't save us. Just like baptism in and of itself doesn't save us, but rather it's a sign. It's, it's pointing to something. And like the Passover meal, the context from Exodus 12, this meal, the Lord's Supper, reminds us that God saved a people for Himself through the blood of a sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice. And like what happened in Exodus 12, we receive our salvation by substitution. Just like in Exodus 12 where the lamb died in their place, now Jesus is pointing to He dies in or for our place, for all who shelter under it, for all who plead the blood of the lamb. We are saved from God's righteous wrath by sheltering under the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. That's what this meal points to. And only those who are covered by the blood of the Lamb are saved. God has freed His people from sin and the due penalty from their sin, and He has redeemed us for worship. And on the night before this great act of deliverance, what we see in our passage, Mark 14, just like the night before in Exodus 12, before that great act of deliverance, Jesus gave them a meal to celebrate ever after. This meal defines us as God's people in Christ. That's why this meal is reserved for only those who are in Christ. It defines the identity of God's people, the church. And when we take it, we're reminded of our fellowship with God and our fellowship with one another that we have united as God's people. And when we participate in this meal, by retelling this story, we're reminded of God's past act of deliverance through the shed blood of Christ, and we bring that, we're reminded of that, and it, it reminds us of it in the present. It tells every Christian that we were lost in sin, and that our Lord Jesus is the God who saves. In the Lord's Supper, the, the gospel becomes not only something we hear and something we see, but something we eat. And not only does it point back to what Christ has done, but it also points forward. Look at verse 25. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He's referencing what's called the Messianic Banquet, uh, um, Old Testament references that talk about the choicest wines and the choicest meats. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, and then these three words, until He comes. We're looking forward till He comes. It's a hope. That's an assurance. And so not only are we remembering what God has done in the past, but we're, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're actually tasting the future. 
Now, long before the coming of Christ, we had the prophet Isaiah that, that promised this messianic banquet. Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. See it on the screen, it's page 586. Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. God will deal His own death blow to death. Sorrow and shame will vanish. And on that day when God destroys death, He will, this passage tells us, deal out delicious food and aged wine, fine wine to His people. A people gathered from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. And on that day... God's people will not just be satisfied by Him, but God's people will be satisfied in Him, having perfect fellowship with Him and the rest of God's people. On that day, so, so think about this, when we, this is often neglected when we consider the Lord's Supper. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that one day our Weary waiting will be rewarded. The God we waited for, the God we staked our lives on, the God we clung to when everything else caved in, He will prove to everyone that He and He alone is worthy. And on that day, nothing will be left for us but to rejoice and be glad in His great salvation. But now, we wait. Now we trust. Now we hope. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, not only do we look back to the cross, but we look forward to the coming kingdom. Bread in the cup doesn't, it's not only the, the brokenness and bitterness of Christ's sacrifice and his death, but it's also a foretaste of the feast that God will throw for his son and his son's bride, the church, the people of God, forever. I'm going to close by reading 1 Corinthians chapter. 11, as Paul says this about the Lord's Supper, verse 23 and following, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, 
that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink, as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. In a moment as God's people, those who have sheltered and pleaded the blood of Christ, our substitute, bearing the wrath of God on our behalf, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we're going to remind one another and ourselves, we're going to remember Christ's death and what that meant. And we're also going to remember the messianic banquet, the future, what our longing, what our waiting is for, pointing to the day when we will, in unhindered fashion, be able to rejoice and be glad in our God. For those who have not sheltered under the blood of the Lamb, if you're not a Christian or a follower of Christ, our encouragement to you would be to consider Christ's claim on your life. Apart from Christ, every human being remains under the wrath and judgment of God. But there is a provision. There is a way. And God Himself has provided it in His Son, Jesus Christ. So plead the blood of Christ today. And let's not eat the bread or drink of the cup in an unworthy manner. I want to take a moment. I want to give us a moment to confess our sins before the Lord. I'm going to pray, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this new covenant meal that looks back to your deliverance of your people and looks forward to the banquet to come that we would share with you in the kingdom of God. We thank you for salvation by substitution. We thank you for the shed blood of Christ washing away our sin, redeeming us for worship, reconciling us to our Creator. We love you, Lord, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.